Hey, before we get into this episode today, I just wanted to let you know that we would greatly appreciate if you liked, subscribed, left a review, five stars, five testicles, whatever you want to call them on this podcast. That will help this podcast rank higher in search results so that in the future, anybody who's searching for resources when they've just been diagnosed or have just become a survivor or is a caregiver, they can find this podcast more easily and listen to your stories. Thank you so much. And let's get into the episode. The stories shared on It Takes Balls are unique to the individual sharing. Always speak with your trusted medical provider for treatment options specific to you. Welcome back to It Takes Pulse, presented by Testicular Cancer Awareness Foundation. If you've listened to any podcast, you know what BetterHelp.com is. And today we're joined by a licensed counselor, David Yadish. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So, David, you know, I'm coming at this as somebody who has never been to therapy. I've never felt like I needed it. So I'm hoping to come away from this interview knowing like, you know, maybe there's some benefits for me that I've never considered. Yeah, absolutely. And you're not alone in being, being a guy who has never considered therapy before. So, you know, testicular cancer is obviously a disease of, of, of men. So why is it that men are notorious for not seeking the help that they need? So there's lots of reasons for that, right? So um, we have this, idea that men don't cry or you have to pick yourself up by the bootstraps, like all of those pieces. So masculinity really gets involved. Um, These ideas of shame, what what it means um, to be a guy and therapy tends to be geared. People think it's geared more towards women, right? So in some of the research, they show that uh, women are twice as likely to go to therapy than men. And even from a medical standpoint, men are 50% less likely to seek medical treatment for any disease or any problem um, under the assumption that it'll heal itself or I just don't have time or it'll make me look weak if I go and look for something. So those are probably the biggest contributing factors. Um, Just this masculine idea we have that men shouldn't talk about their feelings or um, kind of hold it up inside and can, can tough it out. Yeah. I mean, through all the the advertising that BetterHelp does, I mean, hopefully that's kind of changing the tide on that. Um, You mentioned some statistics. Is there anything else that is of note in that regard? Um, You know, I think there's also, it's important to know that men are actually four times more likely to die by suicide in the U.S. And so that's like a heavy statistic. And part of why it's so important that we change the stigma around men going to mental health and seeking therapy and, and just talking about what's going on. So like when somebody's diagnosed with cancer or is experiencing any kind of trauma, like what are some of the typical unhealthy ways that guys cope with these kinds of things? So we hear a lot of the idea of like raging out, like this internal, I'm frustrated, I'm upset, like the lack of control. Um, sometimes makes people like take that out on others or put, take that out on even themselves in an outward display. So things like substance use, um, drinking, using other drugs, um, and like feelings of helplessness, trouble sleeping, um, all of these things that contribute to being more depressed, feeling more anxious, but also make it harder to heal um, from a medical standpoint. So what are some healthy ways that guys can cope with, with a diagnosis? So first and foremost, I, I recommend that everyone have someone to talk to. Um, therapy may not be right all the time for everyone. 
Some people may wait till another season of their life, as they say. But having someone to talk to, someone to confide in is so important. Bottling it up, like holding it inside is just makes everything so much harder. Um, but also being really informed. So being informed on process, what's going to happen, um, what your options are, like for prosthesis or um, options in the future for fertility, knowing, having a good relationship with your doctor. So being able to talk openly to them, being able to ask questions. Um, so all that's really important and really healthy ways to like engage in the process, but also things like mindfulness, meditation, um, and challenging those thoughts that come through that are like, there's something wrong with me. I did this, or um, like, I, I can do this on my own, really challenging that and saying like, there's a lot of strength in asking for help. There's a lot of strength in, in battling something head on rather than trying to just say, I'll get over it or I'll work through it. Yeah. Um, so back to like kind of maybe the unhealthy ways. Um, so when a guy is, has been diagnosed, how can somebody recognize these unhealthy behaviors and know when it's time to seek help? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say probably some of the first things you'll notice are increased isolation. Um, people tend to, men especially tend to like shrink away when they're struggling to deal with something or struggling to talk about something. Also, if you see um, kind of this, this outward display, like I was saying before, of anger or frustration, uh, people are a little bit, have more of a like hair trigger, as you might say. Um, feeling more frustrated. So those are some warning signs that that something more may be going on. And like I said, substance use is a big thing too. So anything above what somebody would normally drink or normally use um, to try to like numb those feelings. So when somebody decides to, to seek therapy, um, is it typically like they're noticing these issues themselves or are they being kind of talked into it by a, a loved one? I think everyone's journey to therapy is a little bit different, right? Like the first time that I went to therapy, um, I was actually in grad school. Like I waited until I was studying to be a therapist to go. And I kind of wish I had started earlier because there was so much stuff that came out that was unrelated to school and unrelated to being a therapist. Um, so sometimes it is a loved one noticing and saying, hey, you know, I there's something going on. If you don't feel comfortable talking to me about it, you know, you can see a therapist. Um, that's what we're here for. Other people kind of recognize that there's something going on. They need to be able to kind of work through it and don't have the tools um, to do so. And now therapy is so accessible, right? You know, 10, 15 years ago, it'd be so hard to find a therapist looking online, um, finding, you know, a, a male therapist, if that's what you're looking for, to be able to be more relatable. Um, and 75% of therapists are female. So like, that's already a small statistic. Um, but now being able to use online resources, um, there's lots of mental health clinics available and there's a lot of support groups available, right? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, a large part of our audience is uh, moms who are listening to this to give information to their sons. So like how can a mom frame the proposition to go to therapy and, you know, not get one of those rage filled responses? I mean, there's no guarantee, right? Like, um, especially teenagers, we go through all kinds of stuff and, you know, testicular cancer affects people in like such a devastating time, 15 to what, 45, I believe. Yeah. So 
those early ages, it's really tough to be to face a diagnosis like that. So one, giving some space, allowing a teenager especially to kind of process some of the stuff on their own and then give them the option. Let them know it's it's available. You know, I can help you find a therapist, but not really pushing because nobody likes to be told what to do, right? Um, especially when we're teenagers. Um, so presenting it, leaving it as an option and talking about like, it's different than talking to your mom. Um, talking to a therapist, they're, they come from a different experience. They're not coming from that, like, I want to protect you and take care of you and and make everything all better. A therapist is there to kind of push and challenge and, and engage with where you're at. So kind of approaching that and giving information about what therapy is like and what it is. It's great advice. You mentioned shame earlier, and that's one big thing with testicular cancer. I mean, even if you're stage one and you only have the orchiectomy in, in one test score removed, I mean, that's part of your manhood that quote unquote mm-hmm. manhood is being taken. So, I mean, how do you deal with that shame? You know, shame is a really tough emotion because it it increases that idea that we like should hide away and we shouldn't talk about things, right? So shame is very different than guilt. Right. So guilt is feeling like I did something wrong and I can learn from it. Whereas shame is kind of this this mechanism of I am wrong, like there's something wrong with me. So recognizing that a little bit in as shame comes up is really important. But thinking about what what makes a man, what is manhood? Is it is it really our balls? Is it really like what we have between our legs or is it? you know, our ability to be caregivers, to be helpful to others, to work hard and, and do those other things. So for everyone, that definition of what makes a man and what is, what is masculinity is going to be different, but recognizing that it's not just about what we have. um, It's so much more. Yeah. And you mentioned the caregiving thing. I mean, that's another part of this is when somebody's going through treatment, they are kind of down and out. So they don't have that routine and and then they can fall into a depression. I mean, is that something that would Mm -hmm. be typical? I mean, everyone's experience is going to be different, right? I think what we've seen for anybody going through like a medical trauma is that depression or other symptoms can, can come at any point, like immediately when there's a diagnosis or when treatment's starting or after treatment and sinking into that depression. Um, And, it's, it is incredibly common for the fear, the anxiety, the kind of frustration, the helplessness, all of those pieces to, to increase that depression, right? To make somebody sink into a place that they hadn't been before. And getting out of it is not easy. Like when someone experiences trauma, it's the lack of feeling like you have the resources, the lack of support system, the lack of knowledge, the lack of um, like ability that really solidifies that trauma um, and makes it harder and harder to kind of dig our way out of those feelings. Yeah. And this might be a a tough question to answer because you've talked about everybody's journey being different, but I mean, is there a typical way or, or, you know, a normal way for a cancer uh, patient or survivor to feel, or is it kind of just up to each person? I mean, largely it's up to each, each person, right. But there are some things that that have been shown to be pretty common. Um, so sleepness, sleeplessness, um, night terrors, like a lot of stuff that uh, negatively impacts sleeping um, tends to be pretty common. Um, there's the 
the worry and fear about upcoming scans or it coming back. So the anxiety that comes from that is pretty common. Um, and, you know, I mentioned before that it's it's a medical trauma, right? When you hear anything that's life-threatening or um, hurts you in some physical way, that can be a trauma. And so all of the symptoms associated with post-traumatic stress of feeling overwhelmed, feeling potentially numb, like not knowing how to like move through the world and feel things fully, um, those can be really common responses. Yeah, I mean, anecdotally, like I always feel, especially coming up to to different scan times, like I feel like my remaining testicle is, is um, you know, aching or whatever. And I feel like I'm crazy, like it's just in my head because I go to the doctor and, and they say, oh, like, it's fine, you're all good. But I mean, you're saying, is that that's a normal way to feel or is that just me being crazy? No, that's absolutely normal. Like, if you think about it, like one day you suddenly had this, this cancer, this thing that like was attacking your body. So after that, everything that comes up that feels abnormal or feels different, it's going to evoke those same emotions, those same feelings. And that's where that anxiety comes from. There was actually some research recently about like um, pre-scan anxiety, I believe they call it. And you know, it's, it's incredibly common. I, they said somewhere between 60 and 70% of people struggle with that. Um, and that's just the people that report it, right? That's not including people who say, no, I'm fine. Like everything's great. Um, so it, it's incredibly common to, to worry about all, all the things that are happening and that it's going to come back, that it's going to be worse. Right. So how can you differentiate? Like if you're starting to feel those feelings, like how can you kind of in your head know like, oh, well, that's just me being anxious versus like, okay, this is a serious actual medical issue that I might need to have another ultrasound on my remaining testicle. You know, knowing like how to check yourself, knowing how to watch for testicular cancer, um, that's probably the first offense so that you have something in your back pocket, but also having information about what to look for, talking, being open to, with your doctor. I mentioned before, having a two-way communication with your doctor, being able to say like, hey, is this something that I should be worried about? Um, is this something I'm feeling? And also, if you are feeling anxious about something, if you're feeling like something is off, try giving yourself some time. Try thinking about you know, either a distraction or something that you can do um, to take away from that anxiety. And if you still feel like something's wrong, if you still feel like something's going on, then get it checked out. Talk to your doctor, like bring it up. Um, because a lot of times there's nothing wrong with feeling anxious that something's going to happen, right? Like that's a normal feeling. People feel that all the time. It's, it's when those feelings start to prevent us from doing things in life, prevent us from engaging fully with what we want to do, that it becomes a major barrier. This might be a tough question to answer too, because I, I just thought of this one on the fly off the cuff and not predetermined, but I mean, um, my brother is a hypochondriac. So I mean, if, and he's not the only one out there. So if you're a hypochondriac and, and you feel like everything is going wrong, I mean, what are ways to deal with something like that? So I don't specialize, um, in like hypochondria and like medical, um, medical anxiety, but definitely anything that helps with reducing anxiety um, can be helpful in that situation. So really looking at things like yoga, 
right? Or if not yoga, some sort of physical practice can be really helpful. Um, humans in general like like to be like in motion. So going for a walk even, it doesn't have to be playing a sport, but that can help reduce anxiety. Um, talking about it, being able to like externalize what's going on is very valuable as well. Um, because sometimes as we're saying those things, as we're saying like, this is a problem, this is wrong with me, we can kind of hear ourselves and say, you know, okay, maybe maybe I'm overinflating this, or maybe I'm more anxious about this than I need to be in the moment. Um, so those are probably the the big things that I would say. But also, there's a there's a balance between like knowledge and research and doing too much research, right? Like that whole WebMD diagnosis idea, where you can Google anything and it's going to end up like you're dying tomorrow, right? So knowing what to look for, knowing the problems, but not not putting yourself in this situation where you're spending hours Googling something. And if you find yourself in that space where you're, you can't look away from the computer, you can't get away from this idea, then that's when you might need to seek help. You might need to talk to someone um, like a licensed therapist and say, you know, this is what I'm struggling with. Can we go over specific things to help me with my anxiety? Can we go over specific tools like deep breathing, right? Um, that can be incredibly helpful because it helps slow down that the central nervous system. So taking slow, deep breaths um, is something that's really good in a rescue in the last minute. Interesting. Yeah, I'm probably uh, demented because I gave my brother a shirt for Christmas that says WebMD says I'm already dead. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, that's another it, great way to deal with it, though, like humor. Like that's that's humor is so good for the soul. It's so good for feeling better. So that's great. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of how I coped with with this diagnosis is because, you know, I say as far as cancer goes, at least I got the funny one. <laughs> um, is there any known relationship between chemo and like a change in mental state? So the biggest one that we know of, right, is the kind of chemo brain fog that comes from um, like long term radiation, long term chemo. So things like forgetfulness, feeling like um, you can't focus. So that's kind of the big one that people know of. I don't I don't know of any research that talks about specifically depression or anxiety. Um, and if it's like medically related to chemo or if it's the idea of chemo, right? Like going through that process is, is shitty. Sorry, my language, but like there's no good way to say it. And you're gonna feel anxious and you're gonna feel sad about it. Um, but is it the chemical or is it what's happening? Um, and so that that brain fog is difficult to work through and and remembering things, feeling like you can focus on a conversation, engage with people um, can be really destabilizing. Yeah, I would say that's one of the biggest lasting things for me is like it's so frustrating that I used to be able to remember everything. And now it's like I pull my phone out and look at it. And I'm like, why did I just take my phone out? I, I don't remember what I was even looking for. Um, and another thing that I feel like I experience, and, and maybe other people that you know of too, is um, I feel like I'm more irritable now post chemo. Like, is that kind of a mint? Hmm. Like, is that would that be your forte, or would that be like a neurologist? That's a great question. So I don't I don't know if that's a side effect or not, um, but a therapist would definitely be able to help work through the feelings of irritability and kind of work through like what to do about it. But as far as it being 
like a side effect of chemo, like a long-term side effect, that would be for a neurologist, like you said, or, um, or even an oncologist to see if that is something that, that they see frequently, because a lot of times they can make, um, recommendations for who to talk to or what might be going on. Interesting. Okay. Um, you know, you talked earlier about isolation. What can patients and or their loved ones do to maintain the relationships and not allow the patient or if they're the patient themselves to isolate? Like, how do they keep these friendships and the good relationships with their significant other? A lot of times, you know, testicular cancer results in more failed relationships. Like, how can you deal with that? So it's, there's a lot to deal with there, right? Like there's a lot going on. And when someone isn't feeling well, when we have a cold, even we're not the same person, right? Like we're more irritable, we're more, we're more upset. So giving a little bit of grace and a little bit of space in those situations is really important. Um, when we're feeling highly emotional about anything, it's really hard to process. It's really hard to engage in that higher level thinking. Um, so like rational thought um, is is kind of blocked as in the higher emotional states. So giving yourself that time before having big conversations, before having big arguments, um, whenever you whenever you can, right? But also for caregiver for caregivers, I can't stress this enough. Caregiver, care, oh my goodness, I can't say it. Mm-hmm. Caregivers also have to care for themselves, right? You know, we've heard it a million times. You can't pour from an empty cup. And it's true. It's a hundred percent true. If you're devoting all of your energy and all of your resources towards helping a loved one through an incredibly challenging, incredibly difficult, life-changing experience, there's going to be effects for you, right? You're going to have some anxiety, some, some depression around that as well. Feelings like your life has been changed by this as well. So being able to get support as a caregiver, whether it be online support groups or, again, a therapist or just a friend to talk to, making sure that you have that space, you're caring for yourself. Um, that'll make a world of difference because again, we don't, we can't rationalize. We can't talk through things when we're in a state of like feeling overwhelmed and unregulated. So both sides need to be able to, to do those things as well. I'm really glad you, glad you brought that up. Cause I didn't even think about the the caregiver needing therapy too. But I mean, that's a really great point. Um, for guys who are still hesitant to, to see a therapist, um, you know, whether it be because of money or they still feel that there's a stigma or, uh, there's a lack of access, what kinds of things can they do in their daily lives to cope with the diagnosis and survivorship? So, and I've probably said it like 30 times in this, in this podcast already, like finding someone to talk to, if it's not a therapist, maybe it's a friend or a spouse or another loved one, right? Like being able to communicate and verbalize what you're going through is so important. It's like the foundation of, of healing. And hopefully if needed, that will open the doors for therapy, right? Like when you're able to communicate, you're able to talk to someone that might give you the the idea that, oh, maybe I could talk to someone who's trained in this, who knows kind of the way to respond and knows some skills that I can work on. Um, so that would be the, the biggest thing I would say. 
Yeah, and then another question I have is, um, and if you're listening to this for the for the first time and you haven't listened to Dr. Parazio's episode, go back and listen to that. We talked about um, this being a disease of survivors, but like one thing that I experience is survivor's guilt. And I feel like maybe I do this podcast, I go too hard, like trying to overcompensate for, you know, there's there's people who have passed on and, and I'm here, you know, bearing this burden to, to spread awareness. So, I mean, survivor's guilt, I think is a real thing. So talk about kind of, if that's common or, you know, what are ways to cope with it? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Survivor guilt, survivor's guilt is incredibly common. Um, and it's, it's not just this, the guilt of I survived where others didn't. There's also the guilt of like we were talking about before, givers, the change in those relationships, you know, when we go through a traumatic event, when we go through something that is really difficult to process, so many things in our life changes. Um, and so giving yourself the space to grieve some of that is important because that's how we get closure on it. And it doesn't mean a relationship's ended, right? It's just you went through something together and it changes how you communicate. It changes how you are together. Um, so a big step, engaging in community. You know, I think acts of service are huge being able to kind of give a part of yourself in healing to help heal others. So something like this podcast, something like joining support groups to talk to other people. When we can, we can share our successes with others, it helps us feel good and it helps other people who are struggling with that. So that's a great way to kind of manage some of that survivor's guilt, manage some of those feelings around it. Um, you know, as well as finding just stress relieving activities, you know, survivor's guilt is a lot about stress, a lot about, a lot about anxiety, um, and finding activities that you can engage in, engage in on a regular basis can be really powerful in helping you move past that, move on to the next step. Uh, so one thing like with testicular cancer is, um, you know, testosterone levels change you only need one test score to make testosterone. Sometimes there's survivors who have lost both testicles. So, you know, what are the effects of testosterone level on like a guy having depression? So with some of the research around like testosterone and mental health, the physical symptoms of lower testosterone or um, having to be on like testosterone therapy, things like um, the low sex drive, gaining weight, increased belly fat. Um, there is some links to like irritability and difficulty concentrating with low testosterone as well. So those physical symptoms can also increase feelings of depression, feelings of, of frustration and helplessness, right? Like you're giving even more of yourself to this, this disease that you're working through. Um, but there's also a link that they're exploring between testosterone and serotonin levels and dopamine levels. So dopamine is... Um, is the chemical in our in our brains that helps us feel good about things, right? And so there's some link to testosterone, having lower testosterone, um, kind of depleting some of that dopamine, so making it harder to feel good about things. So that's a that's an actual chemical reaction that's going to make it difficult to engage in the things you might have once loved, right? So couple that on that's that's a part of depression. So being able to like kind of I don't want to say force yourself, but push yourself into doing some of the things that you like to do um, is a good way to combat that. And 
if you speak to your doctor or psychiatrist about potentially other medications that can help, you know, level out some of those concerns, level out some of those, um, those brain chemicals. Interesting. For those that don't know, and I'm speaking for myself, um, what's the difference between a therapist and a psychiatrist? That's, you know, it's funny. I get that question all the time in my personal life too. Um, so a psychiatrist is a medical doctor, a medical professional who has gone to med school. They can prescribe medications. They can do different kinds of assessment. And a lot of times it's even like covered under insurance differently because they are like a medical provider. A therapist goes to you know school for four years, does training hours, and gets licensed in their state. Um, but their goal is to do psychotherapy. So to talk about the underlying concerns, the underlying issues of where things come from, and to really develop those skills to to feel better, to to work on self-improvement. Um, so there's a lot of overlap in between the two positions. Um, but the the biggest difference is therapist, at least in the United States, um, and counselors cannot prescribe medication, whereas psychiatrists can. So if people are looking for medication or looking for um, that kind of support, they'll have to speak to a doctor or a psychiatrist. Interesting. Okay. Um, so when a guy has gone through, you know, his orchiectomy, had his test score moved, he's gone through chemo, maybe he's had the retroperitoneal lymph node dissection, he's been off work. How can a guy cope with assimilating back into normal life? That's a great question. It's, it starts with the small steps, you know, doing the little things that you can day by day to feel more quote unquote normal, right? Like to feel more yourself. Um, if that's, if you used to go somewhere every weekend and, you know, play soccer with friends, if you don't feel physically like you're able to going to watch, right. Just to be around that environment. Um, if you have the option, if you have the opportunity and you can work part-time instead of jumping back into a full-time schedule of 40, 50, 60 hours a week, you know, whatever it was, giving yourself the, the space and the, the, the permission to take things slowly, you know, as, as guys were often like, I'm going to dive in, I can do this. I'm going to, um, you know, all out, give it everything I've got. Um, and that's, and that can be great. That can be admirable, right? Like giving everything you have to something and being fully invested. But you, when you're recovering from a trauma, when you're recovering physically and mentally, you have to reserve some of that for yourself. You have to keep, keep a part of you that's still healing and then give what you have to give. You don't have to overexert. Gotcha. All right. Um, so the cancer card is a term that is used when would somebody notice, like, you know, if you're a caregiver and, and your son had had cancer, like, how can you say, all right, like, you've, you're using the cancer card too much, like, you got to get a job now, you know, like, I mean, can you overuse the cancer card? You know, I don't I don't have a good answer for that. Um, because, again, everyone's journey is different. I think. If you if you're a parent and you're supporting someone and you're at that point where you feel like, hey, we need to we need to start changing things. You need to either get a job or you need to be more engaged in after school activities or more engaged in school if you're still in school. Um, when you start feeling that, having that conversation and coming at it not from the perspective of, I'm telling you you have to do something, 
and more from the perspective of, I feel like this would be good for you. I feel like this is a good step in your journey. And it may not feel like it now. It may not feel like you want to do it or you feel like you can't do it, but it's important for your healing, right? Um, a lot of times, I think where that idea of like playing the cancer card comes from too is either somebody who's afraid to go back or afraid they can't do things that they did before um, or they're still struggling with depression and feel like they don't want to do it. Um, and so as a caregiver, as a support, trying to think of it from that perspective and still kind of push a little bit and still encourage um, without without like making it that ultimatum, without saying like, you must do this, you can't do that. Um, being supportive in, in whatever way you can. Gotcha, okay. And I just want to note that this is not a sponsored podcast. I reached out to BetterHelp because I heard the ads all over the place. But I do, there was no money exchange between TCAF and uh, BetterHelp as of the time of recording this. But I do want to let you kind of talk about BetterHelp and, you know, what that resource is. Absolutely. I I think the, the biggest thing I can say about BetterHelp as a resource is, you know, we offer affordable therapy, affordable online therapy. The rates are often comparable to what you can find um, with insurance copays. And if you don't have insurance, sometimes it's it's a much more affordable option. BetterHelp has really worked on making therapy accessible, making it, uh, you know, a household name. Everyone's probably heard the advertisements. Everyone, heard, most people have heard of BetterHelp. And the goal that we have as a company is to destigmatize mental health care and encourage people to seek out supports. And, you know, we have thousands of therapists across the country that are available to help. Um, there's options of doing video or phone or, you know, texting. So if you don't feel comfortable being face-to-face -face right away, that's something you can work up to. You know, the traditional way of finding a therapist of, you know, looking online or, you know, talking to your doctor for a referral can sometimes take months, you know, but therapy on BetterHelp is is accessible and available within, you know, 24, 48 hours sometimes. Um, so it it really is changing the accessibility, the availability, and and hoping that everyone can can access therapy when they need it and when they want it. Um, and I want to say too, something that's really important is you don't have to wait until you're you're in the state of like. I feel like I can't do anything anymore. You don't have to wait until you're in a crisis to seek out therapy. You can try therapy and give it a month, give it two months and see how you feel afterwards, see how you connect and relate to a therapist. Um, and you always have the option to switch. So if you're not connecting with someone, you can change to someone else. You can try a different approach. Gotcha. Okay. So if you're a caregiver and you catch your loved one uh, talking on the phone at four in the morning, it's either uh, Jake from State Farm or David from BetterHelp. <laughs> exactly. Yep. <laughs> David, is there anything else that you want to talk about that I didn't ask about? Um, I don't think I have anything specific. Was there any, did you have any other, any thoughts or questions or follow up? Uh, I think we're good. Thank you so much for, for being on It Takes Balls. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me. This was great. For more information and resources for your testicular cancer journey, visit testiculaircancerawarenessfoundation.org. You can also follow us on social media at Testis Cancer.
We're on Facebook at Testicular Cancer Awareness Foundation.